Welcome to Original Reporting, where we look at incentives in the media ecosystem for high-quality original journalism. I'm Tomer Ovadia, and in this episode, we look at the strategies publishers are currently employing in response to the incentives that we explored in the last episode. We'll hear some case studies from national, local, and investigative publishers. Quick disclaimer, this podcast is the result of my night visiting Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University, where I studied these dynamics for one month while on leave from my day job. The podcast is not intended to be an exhaustive or conclusive report, and while I normally am employed as a software engineer working on Google News, Google had no role in the creation of this podcast or in my decision to participate in this fellowship, and any opinions I express in the podcast are solely my own. News publishers primarily generate revenue through either advertising or subscriptions, and historically, they relied mostly on advertising, which they adapted to radio and then TV, and then tried to adapt to the internet. There was hope that new media publishers like the Huffington Post and BuzzFeed were making this work, even though they were in some ways frustrating legacy publishers like the New York Times by not producing much original reporting of their own, they were starting to change that, and there was hope that they were onto something that could be morphed into sustainable support for high-quality original content. And then, in early 2019... All right, BuzzFeed is cutting 15% of its workforce. Three media companies are facing their own struggles, leading to staff layoffs. More than a 1,000 workers, many of them reporters, have lost their jobs at companies like BuzzFeed, HuffPost, and Vice. Just five years ago, these digital news outlets were seen as the future of journalism. We'll hear from a few people from different publishers as case studies for how publishers have adapted to this. But first, for an overview, here's Jeff Sonderman. I'm the deputy executive director at the American Press Institute. Generalizing, like a lot of the aggregation that that people would have been aware of uh, back then, uh, you know, it was designed to get to basically use somebody else's uh, work or some other previously available information and maybe re, uh, reframe it a little bit, rephrase it a little more salaciously, right? put a little bit of a spin on it, but basically to amp it up and pass it along. And it's sort of a middleman model. And uh, you know, somebody else kind of first produced the original thing. You did a little bit to it in the middle, and then you connected to... Uh, a larger or different audience on the on the other end, and you're sort of extracting value in the middle, and that value was was basically extracted from display advertising that you would stick next to what you were aggregating. One other thing that comes to mind is you know a, a lot of the biggest sort of aggregation and new digital plays that that blew up at that time were uh, a lot of it was venture capital backed, uh, investment backed. So that's sort of speculative, right? It was sort of this idea that. Well, the internet's growing really fast. There's a lot of people on it, and if I can get millions and millions of eyeballs, that's that's just gonna be valuable somehow, right? So, uh, I will invest millions of dollars of seed money in a really expensive startup with really expensive Manhattan office space to hire a lot of people really quickly, um, and they'll get millions of eyeballs, and that will either sort of magically be profitable through ads, or we will uh, flip that and sell it to some bigger publisher who will just buy us out and we'll get our money back. Um, and so there was a bit of a speculative bubble and all those things. So uh, And the way things. the bubbles work is pretty much everybody gets a little <laughs> over-exuberant and overheated because everybody thinks the, the value is going up no matter what. And not even necessarily for reasons, just because everyone else seems interested in it. So everybody, I think, all at the same time kind of hypes themselves up into it, right? Facebook wants more sharing, more time spent, more links shared, more photos shared on the platform. So they're going to reward attention to Facebook pages. They're sharing things that people are clicking on a lot. And then websites start getting a lot of traffic (laughs) from the thing that's being clicked on a lot. And investors see a lot of traffic and they think, well, that must be good. And Facebook seems popular. And so it's one of those things where, you know, the sort of underlying fundamentals, so to speak, in investing are harder to assess because you have very few and very limited uh, depth of metrics about this stuff. It's just traffic and uniques and page views. And so uh, you don't really know the value of what you're left holding at the end of a bubble like that until the bubble bursts and you really look inside of it. Okay, so what appeared to be the financial success of these publishers was really driven by venture capital money. They weren't totally standing on their own legs. I asked Jeff why. What didn't check out about their revenue models? 
As digital advertising in general became a little less profitable for people. It was kind of a race to the bottom, you know, it was uh, all inventory is created equal and every year there's twice as much stuff on the internet as there was the year before. So the, the inventory just keeps going up and it's very, there's really no gatekeeping to it. So value per impression for digital advertising has kind of gone down uh, on the whole. And uh, increasingly the, the market, the, the economics that underlie news production have shifted toward uh, reader revenue, toward subscriptions, toward donations and membership and payments. Uh, and all of that economy centers on loyalty and, uh, and building a trusted relationship over time and building habits with those readers. Um, and so that is not really well achieved by aggregation that's going to, you know, draw an eyeball one time and then they kind of go away. Um, and so uh, it, it became a really different model, at least for some publishers, where aggregation wasn't as profitable anymore and aggregation was omitting a whole kind of rising business model around reader revenue. Uh, that that uh, was beginning to look like something that people should pay more attention to. Some of those now, some of those things stayed around. I, Vox Media pivoted into some really good original content and uh, and explainers. So not, not everything was the same back then. So given that advertisements were just not translating to the internet as they had for radio and TV, publishers are turning instead to subscriptions to fund original reporting, which has a whole host of implications to their strategies. Uh, attention became cheaper and cheaper, and it was like, well, what's really the quality of that attention? What's the uh, replicability of that attention? Can I get that same person to come back again? Uh, does that person really even know what website they're on right now? <laughs> to the point that my ad on this site gives some credibility, uh, or are they just sort of, you know, s skimming around the internet and they're not even going to remember where they are and what they saw anymore? And does it is the bubble sort of bursting now? Yeah, I think, uh, well, deflated at least. Uh, yeah. yeah, some bubbles pop and never come back, and some of them <laughs> just let, let all the air out a little bit. Uh, uh, there's certainly, you know, aggregation is still a thing. I think the economics of it in some, at some level maybe still work. Um, uh, but I think uh, there's a lot less uh, optimism about that as a standalone business model now, right? So um, even if you look at, there's examples like even the Washington Post, um, which you know is rightly understood as a great creator of original content and, uh, and national coverage. Um, in their mix, they have a morning aggregation team that comes in before dawn and is scouring the internet for what's really driving conversation, and is trying to basically aggregate and spin, put spins on it, and make it their own thing, so that they get a big surge of morning traffic. So Jeff is talking about a content strategy that involves a mix of some aggregation, maybe smart aggregation, although that's highly subjective, as well as original content for a new, now industry standard revenue strategy that aims to generate both advertising and subscription revenue. Look, advertising is still great. Uh, there's there's still pretty good money there, and no one's no one's turning it away. <laughs> but uh, uh, they'll take what they can get. Uh, but the trend lines for growth in digital advertising have been modest, while the uh, declining lines of legacy revenue from a print newspaper or, or other you know forms of prior revenue streams have declined very quickly. And so people have recognized that it wasn't going to be digital ads just replace uh, prior revenue streams. And so uh, you need a mix of these different things. And that means you need a mix of strategies and kind of a balanced approach to content. And in a lot of ways, I think thinking of news diets a lot like food diets works in a, as a metaphor for a lot of things. And so, you know, if you think about, you know, someone's only going to be hungry for so much food, right? And so uh, now f some people, you know, are starving and, and, and they just want to eat anything or some people are, you know, in a hurry and they're, they're looking for a snack, but, uh, you know, but there's a market for a really fine dining restaurant out there that is a, a curated food experience with a talented chef. And, and in the same way, there's a market for news that is, uh, you know, thoughtfully done, considered, written extremely well on edited carefully and, and that kind of thing. 
Um, which isn't to say McDonald's is going out of business, right? Like there's still a market for that too, but, uh, uh, but you know, there's, there's limits on it. And so, uh, it's not always the truth that just everybody always wants more food all the time. Right. And, and in the same way, not everybody always just has an infinite appetite for more news. So if you now have a revenue model in which you're primarily aiming for subscriptions, traffic has a very different purpose for you. For serious journalism, um, you know, the, the metaphor in, uh, in sales and in marketing is, is of a funnel. And uh, a funnel is basically the idea that you start with a lot of people in a wide segment at the very top of it and, who are, you know, new to you. And as they pro- progressively move down the funnel, it narrows to smaller and smaller groups that are getting more and more loyal. And at the very bottom, they, they convert, which might mean buying a subscription or buying your product or whatever your thing is. In that model, uh, yeah, you got to convert subscribers right at the bottom, but you still also got to fill up your funnel at the top <laughs> continually, right? Like that's a it's a flow. So uh, there's a role for smart aggregation, targeted aggregation of of helpful information and, and making it uh, useful to people um, to keep new audiences discovering you in social spaces and, and in search and uh, coming to your site for the first time. It's just you also have to connect into this pipeline that will take them further down over time. So there's this funnel dynamic in which you need to feed new potential subscribers at the top and then cultivate their loyalty so that they become paying subscribers at the bottom. Remember this funnel dynamic, since several people we speak to in case studies later in this episode will bring it up again. Uh, content popularity, engagement with any, any websites, news content, tends to follow some kind of a Pareto distribution, which is like an 80-20 rule, right? So 20% of the content is generating 80% of the traffic, uh, which means 80% of the content is only generating 20% of the traffic and, and very little. Um, so you can, there, there is stuff that you're probably doing as a news publisher that really very few people care about or, um, or that is just so not unique to you that they can get it anywhere and you're not a special source for it, and so you're not getting a large share of the traffic for that thing. You know, it might still be important, right? But you're just not the place for it. Um, and uh, uh, so, being smart about figuring out like where is really our sweet spot, where uh, it's worth us doing fewer things really well and uniquely, because when those are hits, they're really big hits. Um, and instead of being sort of on the hamster wheel, where it's just like, keep running, keep it moving, never stop, keep cranking it out, you know, and it's sort of like, are, are we really winning here? Have we looked around to see what, what's really happening? So we're going to blitz through insights from people at seven publishers to understand their thinking around this and if and how they're adopting these approaches. First up is Jim Vandehei. I'm Jim Vandehei, co-founder and CEO of Axios. Jim previously worked at the Washington Post and then founded Politico. So one of the reasons I'm really excited to get your perspective in particular on this is you have the insight into the thinking around this, both from an institutional perspective like the Post, starting a new media brand in 2006, and then now starting another new media brand in 2016, all very different environments. Can you put me sort of in the room where those conversations happened? What were those conversations like? And what were other sort of media entrepreneurs saying to each other about the best way to approach this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it goes to what kind of company you're trying to start. So both Politico and Axios are publications that are defined by sort of informing and hooking a really busy really discerning, really influential audience. And so by its very nature, you have to be telling them stuff they don't know. And that's what original reporting is. And so in both cases, almost all of our discussions at the formation of both companies were, how do we deliver information that people didn't otherwise have, that they would find super useful, and even so useful that they might pay for that content or that advertisers certainly would want to be next to that content. And so all of the discussion was around original content. Jim often speaks about Politico and Axios in the same breath as The Information, which is a subscription publication that covers the business of tech. The currency is original reporting. 
now the the similarities between Politico, the information, and Axios would be that, yes, at their foundation, they're about original reporting, but that original reporting comes from people who have subject matter expertise. And because they have that subject matter expertise, when something else is happening in the news, including original reporting by a rival organization, they still often will weigh in with additional context, additional analysis, or a new lens on that piece of original reporting. Fundamentally, the value there is the original reporting. Like you take original reporting away from Axios and we don't exist. Take original reporting away from Politico and it does not exist. Take original reporting away from the information that does not exist. So Jim is saying if you're scooped, which means someone else originally broke news before you, don't just aggregate and copy their reporting. Add some unique analysis that makes your content arguably original as well. If you're thinking that whether a reporter is adding something of value is highly subjective, you're right, and we'll explore that in the next episode. So you'd say, wow, the Washington Post is killing it. They have record traffic. They've got more subscribers than they ever thought possible. And that's awesome because they're hiring more journalists and they're doing more original content than ever. All true. I think if you peeked beneath the hood and looked at where is that traffic coming from, I would imagine a lot of it is coming from stuff that most people aren't, that most sort of people in the media aren't reading, but that is very much around clicks, is very much around aggregation, is very much around news or entertainment or lifestyle stuff uh, that those of us in the media aren't paying attention to. And so the incentive in some ways right now is kind of for both. That's certainly the, the approach that the Post has taken. Jim is mentioning that mixed strategy of both aggregated and original content. But he goes on to explain how original content will always have the value. Now, at the same time, there have been players in the media space that are much more built around aggregation. For instance, the Huffington Post, at least today in its current manifestation, could exist without any original reporting. It could exist in pure aggregation form, much like the Drudge Report has existed forever in pure aggregation form. Now, I think there's very different value propositions in terms of what, what is worth a lot and, and, by the way, what will be worth a lot more uh, over the next five to ten years. I think the original reporting is what's always going to have the value. In the previous episode, we heard Jim say that the incentive to aggregate instead of produce original content came from platforms, and he listed Google, Facebook, and Twitter as examples. I pressed him a bit on this and asked him if he thought that those incentives came mostly or entirely from platforms. Yeah, entirely. I mean, where else would it come from? Like, if you're just going to aggregate, imagine if you just had... Your own, like most people don't go directly to a site now. So unless you have like your loyal built-in audience who's been coming to you for a long time, like they're not going to then come to you because you're doing really good aggregation of what else is out there. The most of the aggregation is driving traffic to you. Most of, most of the aggregation is done to drive eyeballs off of your platform onto your platform. Other than Drudge, now there aren't that many. There aren't, I can't think of many places where you're going to that site to see what's going on in the news because you value the aggregation. You go to the New York Times. I'm going to the New York Times because I like the New York Times and I like their reporters and I like their writing. I'm not going there hunting out the best aggregation of something else that happened. Different people I spoke with did share a few other incentives for aggregation, and we'll make note of them as we go, and then ask Jeff Jarvis, a professor who appeared in the previous episodes, to comment on them later. I asked Jim if he felt the incentives for original content have improved over time. I guess if I had to answer, I would say the incentives were better in 2006 than they are now for most people. That incentives were better back then? Well, they were better back then because you didn't have the temptation and all that comes from it with, uh, with, with the platforms. Now, you also wouldn't have the scale that you have with the platform. So it's not, it's not easy. It's not like I don't, I don't consider Google or Facebook or Twitter enemies of media. 
I think that they all like if you if you have a healthy relationship with them and you 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 look at where do they drive or where can they attract readership uh, to you in your owned and operated parts of your company, that could be super healthy. And uh, and by the way, I do think both like what with what Facebook's doing with their news tab and we'll see how that turns out. Uh, or what Google's doing with some adjustments to its algorithm to favor original reporting. Those are very positive trends. I think those are uh, that's kind of where I wish it would have started. Remember when Jeff at the start of this episode mentioned the funnel for converting subscribers and how you need traffic to feed into the top of that funnel? Here's Jim's thinking on that. All we're looking for is how do I get a daily active user, somebody who comes to us with purpose on a daily basis, who knows they're at Axios and who needs our content. Google matters to that because they can drive a lot of high-intent readers to your site, which you can then turn into daily active users if you do uh, marketing correctly. And so, but our business, if Google didn't exist, if Facebook didn't exist, if Twitter didn't exist, it wouldn't affect us really one iota. We derive almost all of our value from that direct relationship with the consumer, mainly through newsletters, but also through the, through the mobile site. Where you it, so the companies that got in trouble is when they were just so dependent on that traffic, and once you got dependent on traffic, you and I have talked about this in the past. You just by very nature you make the deal with the devil, which is if you're going to be a total scale play, you have to aggregate. If you have to aggregate, you're going to aggregate the things that are going to drive the most attention. If you're going to aggregate the things that drive the most attention, you're going to aggregate crap, and like just stuff that would appear appeal to the lowest common denominator, which by its very nature is just not stuff of great substance or necessarily even great importance. So Jim is describing a balance that needs to be struck. He says, don't depend entirely on traffic and on platforms, but that, again, platforms could help feed the top of that subscription funnel. Uh, search is where you're going to get 30 to 40% of your traffic, and there tend to be readers who have high intent, so they have more value than readers who are coming from other uh, outside platforms. And so it's a totally different conversation. Now, for us specifically, we, we built a company that from a premise of, I don't want to rely on anybody. I want to be able to honestly say, I don't give two shits what Google does, Facebook does, Twitter does. I want to have content and an audience that we own, a relationship with our reader that we own, that if we happen to get some kind of benefit from Google and from Facebook and Twitter, that's awesome, it's additive, we're happy to have it, but it is not at all, uh, it is not at all gonna dictate our model. And what you saw happen in between, let's say Politico and, and, and Axios is you look at the arc of the companies that started and failed, a lot of them built themselves around the algorithms, either built mainly around Facebook, a lot of video companies, but even others. How can we maximize this massive audience that Facebook has? And that's a terrible business incentive because whenever you're tying your business to the benevolence of somebody who has no stake whatsoever in your business, you're basically screwed from the get-go. I really appreciate you taking the time, Jim. All right. I hopefully, hope it was helpful. Our next guest is Marty Katie. Hi there. I'm Marty Katie. I'm the editor of Politico Pro. Jim and Marty used to work together at Politico, so some of what Marty says will sound familiar. For any uh, good publication, scoops are the lifeblood of your editorial and business model. Uh, originality and newness are really what sells. Um, Anyone can aggregate now. Marty described how the incentive for original content comes from subscribers who have come to expect it. Our readership uh, expects that we are on the scene uh, rather than uh, aggregating from a cubicle or, uh, you know, yeah. a basement or whatever. And he said how, as a result, that's the top criteria when he hires reporters. Uh, originality and original reporting, unique reporting is top of the list. It's, it's a number one priority in recruiting and hiring. But Politico does do aggregation in a department called the Breaking News Team. We hire usually relatively inexperienced journalists, uh, fresh out of college, a couple years out of college, 
to do uh, what we call the, the breaking news desk. This is our way of acknowledging the quick hit, uh, commoditized news that we still have to cover because our readers do come to us first. Um, but we, uh, but the purpose of that desk is to get the headline out. Uh, Trump said this. Trump tweeted this. Uh, someone, a newsmaker said something on a show just to have our headline there uh, and make sure we've acknowledged the existence of breaking but quickly commoditized news. Departments like this exist in perhaps most major publishers. The Washington Post has what it calls the live news desk, and the New York Times has what it calls the express desk. Marty was driving to work as we spoke, and I asked him what he would say if he showed up and the breaking news team didn't exist anymore. You'd lose two things. One is you'd probably lose page views. You know, the big headline um, and these days, any headline that clicks heavily is Trump says X, Trump does X, and uh, people just sort of click on it because it's their habit. Uh, what we would not lose... Uh, well, hold on. I'd say what we would also lose is some of that sensibility that people do come to Politico as their first choice in political news. When they hear something's happening, when they see something on TV, they see something on Twitter or Facebook, but they're not sure if it's accurate, if it's a rumor or if it's the real news. They will come. A lot of people still come to Politico first thing. That's a reason for aggregation that we will see come up again and that I asked Jeff Jarvis about later. This idea of needing to create a package for people who visit your website directly and expect a full view of what's going on. Remember, Jim said, and data corroborates, that most traffic to news sites these days isn't direct. What we would not lose, in my opinion, is engagement time and engagement with our most valuable and influential readers. Also, in Marty's answer, is this notion that aggregating a competitor's news is a way of saying that it's important, or sometimes that you think it's accurate. Although, sometimes, as we'll see in the next episode, this can give people a false sense of accuracy, because aggregators don't always do their own independent verification before rewriting, and this could create an appearance otherwise. Next up, also at a national publication, is Carrie Lowerman. I'm executive editor for news at Forbes. Carrie made a great point about talent when it comes to original content. If you remember from episode one, Carrie was at Salon in 2012 when Neiman Lab wrote a positive piece about them investing in original content. Carrie said that shortly after that article was published, he left Salon and they returned to aggregation. He said he didn't know why, but that he guessed it was because others left at the same time, including top journalists. With writers like that, you don't, you don't, you know, they were kind of top of their field. They were good, good writers, original writers, good reporters. You don't really get a benefit from that, those kind of writers if they're churning out content, right? When people like that, though, leave an institution um, unless you're replacing them with sort of similar people, you know, yeah. um, it becomes harder because then you have to, you know, if you hire somebody young, they've got to develop an audience, they've got to develop um, a following to really make their stories pop. Um, it becomes harder. So top journalists come with their own audiences. And when you can't recruit top talent you hire less experienced journalists who often aren't as well-sourced and thus often add value by aggregating. New publications often start with top journalists as their first reporters for this reason, including Vox.com, Politico, and Axios. Kerry summarizes the issue really well in this next part, referring to the era of aggregation around 2010. I mean, unfortunately, it's a sort of unfortunate legacy from, um, from that past era, I think, uh, you know, even now, I think anywhere you go, the instinct is always, we've got to boost traffic, we've got to publish more. It's always, um, if, if you're worried about traffic, you know, the reaction always, we've got to get, we've got to publish more. But, you know, and there's a certain logic to it, right? I mean, it's like, um, the more you publish, the more chances you have for something to, to really take off. I think the bigger issue there is you have news organizations investing in, in you know, really low-skilled workers, 
instead of hiring really high-skilled reporters who can do more. We'll see a concrete example of that later in this episode. Kerry went on to explain a new format he's developing at Forbes called Top Line, which he said would take important original content from elsewhere and add analysis as to why it really matters. To me, it sounded similar to what Vox or Axios do. Here is his really honest assessment of how Topline should rank relative to original content. For example, I'll probably have one of our great reporters, um, reporter writers in London, do that on the impeachment story of today. So when they get in tomorrow, they can read all of the coverage. Um, they can kind of sift through it all, look for what the top line of all of it is, uh, pull out all the different interesting information and see how we can take it a step further, right? Yeah. I don't think that that piece should, should rank above um, the New York Times coverage of the impeachment, right? Um, I think that it's doing something very different than those news stories, um, but it 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 shouldn't it shouldn't outrank the original work that someone else is doing. Um, I definitely think there's room um, for all of that, and there's because I think there's probably an audience for all of that. If somebody Google's uh, what I need to know about yesterday's day in impeachment, well, maybe in that case, depending on what they're looking for, our piece makes more sense. Kerry also spoke about the impact platforms can have on the type of content that is created. I mean, I do feel like a change in algorithm can really reset the eco, the, the kind of media ecosystem for the best. Kerry gave a story as an example from when he ran the editorial team at the website Mike. It was a media company that was really, really living off of Facebook. He said that Facebook at the time incentivized what was called shareable sentiment. And Mike, like a lot of news organizations, really played to that with sort of super woke headlines and um, stories that had, you know, big, pressed really big outrage buttons that people naturally wanted to sign up for. Um, <laughs> the problem with that is, um, and, I, and I think Facebook was smart to recognize, people weren't necessarily... Um, reading those stories, but they were liking them and they were sharing them. And so they were ranking, you know, extremely high in Facebook. He said that these stories did really well until Facebook changed its algorithm. Then when Facebook did change their algorithm away from that, um, you know, it it certainly hurt Mike and it hurt a lot of other um, uh, publications that played to that sort of that outrage audience. And uh, I'm not sure that was a bad thing at all. He said he thinks algorithm changes could similarly improve the ecosystem now. You know, that was an example where I think that was an algorithm change that probably, um, I mean, it hurt some media companies, but I think it was probably better for journalism and probably better for the culture at large, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I think this, you know, I think this stuff really matters. I'm glad the, the platforms really do seem to be uh, taking it taking it seriously, even though we we all probably wouldn't agree with all of their solutions. You know, I think uh, I think it matters matters hugely and um, needs to be constantly sort of reevaluated. Next is a reporter who covers local news and is a former Neiman Fellow, Mary Ellen. I'm Mary Ellen Kloss, and I am the Tallahassee bureau chief for the Miami Herald. I've been at the Herald um, just over 15 years, and um, it is, at, you know, when I started, things were still pretty robust. We had a, a, a newsroom, we had ex- expense accounts, we, ha- we traveled, we, um, but things were slowing down. And, and a year after I started, the paper uh, was sold to the McClatchy chain, and that um, began the beginning of many changes and consolidations. Then a couple of years later was the recession, and you know after that the bottom fell out, um, and we had the first we had hundreds of layoffs within the chain and at the Herald, we had um, furloughs. We everybody took pay cuts. We suspended our pension contributions. That led to hits to our own you know, personal finances in many ways. So um, those changes led, you know, obviously led to um, restructuring and, you know, there were fewer reporters to do many of the things we used to do. 
So Mary Ellen works at the Miami Herald, which is owned by McClatchy, the second largest newspaper chain in the country, according to the Wall Street Journal. They also own the Sacramento Bee, for example. Less than three months before I spoke with Mary Ellen, McClatchy was reportedly on the brink of bankruptcy. McClatchy Company, which publishes the Sacramento Bee, is in deep financial trouble. CBS 13 Steve Large is live in Sacramento with the 162-year-old company reportedly on the brink of bankruptcy, Steve. Mary Ellen shared her personal perspective. Of course, keep in mind this is by no means a complete investigation of what's going on at McClatchy. So we, ha- we get these constant mixed messages. Um, and that's, that's really frustrating. What are these mixed messages that you're referring to? Well, the, the primary mixed message we get is that we should be doing quality journalism, journalism that is the kind of thing that readers want, the work that is unique to us, um, things that we can provide readers that nobody else can provide. And often that is accountability journalism, watchdog journalism, enterprise explanation, and investigation. All of that takes a lot of work. It takes resources, it takes sources, and it also takes um, context and, and the ability to get beyond the surface. However, we are also faced with this message that we need readers to read our stories and we need clicks. I see. And, and when we have that, we can't spend, if we're devoted to making sure we're pushing stories that are getting clicks, um, and the reason we want that is because we're also trying to drive revenue with what's left of our online revenue stream um, from advertising and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, we're also being told we should be focused on writing headlines that drive readers. And it's, it's really hard to do both of those things, especially as our newsroom is shrinking and there's fewer reporters. So one example is at, at our place, we, um, over the last several months, we've had the opportunity to hire three new reporters. But rather than put them in positions where they are digging into information about the community and giving the community something of value and that unique quality that, you know, Miami Herald reporters are known for doing. We hired three people to be on the real-time desk to rewrite copy, write headlines, and push out stories so that we could get more clicks. I see. And what did you think about that? How do you feel about that? I think you can tell from the tone of my voice that I think it was, I think it was, hypocritical. I don't think it's where we should be going. And um, I think many of the people in our newsroom also are, you know, somewhat critical of it, but it's what we're being told pretty much by the corporate powers that be, and they're dictating from the top rather than thinking, you know, asking our community what it wants and needs they have decided that this is what we should be doing. And, and it's probably happening all across the chain. Mary Ellen is referring to the McClatchy chain, but if this sounds familiar, you're probably thinking of the teams we mentioned earlier, Breaking News at Politico, Live News Desk at The Washington Post, and The Express Desk at The New York Times. Mary Ellen estimates that the real-time desk at the Miami Herald is about half a dozen reporters out of a newsroom of about 50. They work pretty much around the clock where they're out there putting stories online, um, trending stories, breaking stories, often politic stories. They also take stories from other newspapers in the chain and will put new fresh headlines on them to run on our website. They are very focused on SEO, making sure that our stories get picked up by Google and any any other kinds of search engines. And they, you know, for the most part, they they do a lot of rewriting. Um, These teams are often responsible for breaking news as well, which is more commonly accepted as a legitimate value add. When there is a breaking news story, we. We do have somebody write it up quickly and post it, which I think is a very good service. But these teams are often also responsible for news that is broken by competitors. But those same people are also sometimes responsible for 
rewriting copy when another news organization breaks a story. I asked her if she felt that aggregation is taking away from original reporting. If we had three more reporters working on original content at the Herald, um, I think we could make a, a we could make a difference. But I don't think it would be a significant difference at this point. Miami is gigantic. We, you know, our staff has declined enormously. Mary Ellen said that the strategy seems to shift back and forth between traffic and original content. And there is frustration to the point that at my shop we organized a union in October and successfully brought together a union. And this was one of the primary driving forces is that we are frustrated by the fact that we are not being asked and, you know, we don't feel our community is and their needs are being reflected in the kind of journalism we're being asked to do on a regular basis. Now, there's a flip side to this, and that is that We do believe we're doing meaningful and powerful journalism all the time at the Miami Herald. And, you know, obviously we had an investigative reporter, Julie Brown, who exposed the Jeffrey Epstein saga, and that led to an enormous um, ripple effect. And, you know, it's had, it's been very powerful journalism. And And those things take time to unravel when we do, readers are often read those stories, and they they're they're often popular, but it's it just takes time to get to them, and and if we have to spend a lot of time writing stories that you know just to kind of fill the paper, fill the website, you just have less time to do this those uh, those kind of that kind of digging, and I don't know that the bottom line is. I, it's it's possible that. The new reporters that are designed to attract digital clicks justify their existence by producing enough ads. Um, Maybe that's how it's working. But we don't know, and I don't know if they will tell us. (laughs) You know, I think there should be more accountability. I think reporters should be given answers to those questions um, because I think we're all in it together. Two weeks after I spoke with Mary Ellen, McClatchy filed for bankruptcy. Bad news today for the Miami Herald. The company that owns the paper is filing for bankruptcy. Well, now to a major business headline with local and national implications. The owner of the Sacramento Bee has filed for bankruptcy. McClatchy is the second biggest newspaper company in the nation. Next is another Neiman fellow who is an editor at another local news publisher, but with what sounds like a very different dynamic. Hi, my name is Nate Payne. I'm executive editor of the Traverse City Record Eagle in Traverse City, Michigan. Original content has been pretty front and center for me pretty much my entire career. I asked him if his newspaper feels pressure to aggregate. I don't think necessarily at our level, no, because there's nobody, you know, who would we aggregate? He said his newspaper is not hyper-local, but it is more local than the Miami Herald. That idea probably works better or would be more applicable to a regional or a, or a metro paper because, you know, as their staffs have shrunk, they're going to be trolling for interesting news from sort of the further reaches of their coverage areas that they, in their footprint, where they really can't afford to staff anymore. While it's unclear whether this difference in strategy is the reason, Nate's paper does have a very different financial situation. We've generally, in the six years I've been here, we've generally been pretty stable. I asked him about the role platforms play in their strategy. You know, if you look at the breakdown of who comes to who comes to our websites and and f- through what platforms it's it's pretty obvious that that platforms are important to getting getting readers to our content but in terms of business model sustainability long term the volume of readers that local news outlets generate simply cannot pay for good journalism it's it's an unsustainable curve in fact you know most local outlets could probably barely pay their electric bill with what they generate from from digital, you know, digital advertising from click by volume. And so what's 
what is a sustainable model if it's not traffic? I mean, I, I think direct relationship with readers. I think that's the that's the bottom line. Getting, you know, getting readers to understand that they need to support local journalism with subscriptions or if it's nonprofit with donations and getting them to understand that every dollar they spend on a subscription like this our industry as a whole for a long time treated treated digital content as though it had no value or very little value and and we weren't talking to our readers about that value that we're providing and you know we have to pivot and we have to get our readers to understand and pivot to being okay with supporting local journalism by paying for it. He said his paper has a healthy mix of advertising and subscriber revenue. You know, we we are a bit of an anomaly at times in that we have a different type of audience here and we generally are doing better than many local news organizations. You know, there are certainly plenty out there who who are in the same boat as as we are, but but it's not, you know, I wouldn't paint I wouldn't paint local news organizations with a broad brush because everyone has different different issues and different struggles. Next is Bridget Williams. My name is Bridget Williams. I'm the SVP of Strategy and Operations for the Digital Group at Hearst Newspapers. Hearst is one of the country's largest owners of local newspapers, including the San Francisco Chronicle. I asked about Hearst's investment in original content. I would say most of our reporters are producing original content. Um, The vast majority of our newsroom are focused around beats, reporting on their beats. You know, it's uh, the way God intended. Knowing this can be easier said than done, I asked her how this translates to revenue. We know that subscribe, that is why people subscribe. We know that when we own a story, it absolutely has outsized influence on driving new subscriptions and driving subscriber engagement. It's, it's our core differentiator and we, you know, we don't take that as an assumption. We obviously track the data around that, but it is the core of our product. Original content is not just, it sounds like it's not just one dynamic at play here. It it is the core. It is the thing. It is the, the the product that you produce that makes the Hearst properties a value. Is that right? Uh, absolutely. It is the reason that the San Francisco Chronicle exists is to produce high quality original content that subscribers want. That's that's it. I asked her how changes by platforms would affect Hearst newspapers. If they uh, demoted non-original content okay. and promoted ours, we would immediately have more people viewing our things. I see. You know, very obviously. So that sounds, it sounds like you would feel that that would be a good change of incentives in the ecosystem because you feel that your properties do produce original content and sort of removing the noise that shadows or clouds that original content would allow you to get more eyeballs and more exposure and more appreciation for the content you will try to produce, right? Absolutely, 100%. Yes. Now, the report at the start of the last episode found that about half of content produced by local newspapers was not original. According to the author, much of the non-original content is what's called syndicated content, whereby the Associated Press, for example, creates content that publishers across the country pay to republish. Bridget said this is not an important part of the strategy at Hearst. Most of the content on our sites... Are, is local. She said Hearst has licensing agreements with the Associated Press, the New York Times, and in some cases, the Washington Post. Um, so that if you come to the Chronicle, obviously if there's a large national story like the impeachment, we are going to, we're going to have that content. But 99% of the newsroom effort is around local content. Isn't it the case that this syndicated content is almost by definition non-original and in a way commoditized? Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. 
So how and, does that fit into the strategy if that ac- that content is already accessible on so many other websites? What's the benefit to the ecosystem of producing or if, of publishing it on additional local sites yep. throughout the country? I would say it's a very small part of our strategy. I think it harkens back to print, right? When you get a newspaper on your door, you expect that to be a package of the local of the di- news of the day. If that sounds familiar, it's because we heard it from Marty as well. We'll have Jeff Jarvis look at this later. You expected this package um, online very, very different. In the paper, the goal is to package everything up well. And online, the store, the goal is to disaggregate it into micro chunks. She estimated what percentage of traffic to Hearst newspapers goes to syndicated content. Less than 10 percent, maybe less than 5 percent. Uh, it's just not something that we spend a lot of time thinking about. I see. So it's not a big part of the strategy. Is that right? No, it's not part of the strategy. It absolutely not. As at the Miami Herald, the breaking news team is where there's a gray area. Where it gets sticky is probably in the breaking news arena, where you, you want to have a team that's just looking out for, you know, if there's a breaking news situation, looking at all the sources. I asked her why getting credit and links from competitors matters to newspapers, and her answer was along the lines of that subscription funnel that we heard about earlier. Any time you can expose someone to coming to our site and reading a story and maybe reading another story and maybe signing up for a newsletter, that that is how we, be, we are a healthy organization, right? Yeah. And so anyone that is taking those eyeballs away and taking them into another site by just writing two paragraphs on our content, that's not great. Again, it's not illegal. It's just not great for us. We're every day trying to prove to the market that news and information goes away if we're not there. And you should be reading this from us and you should support us. Bridget described how oftentimes publishers want their content to travel far and be picked up by other publishers. Radio and TV are aggregating newspaper content like all day long. You know, uh, we've had a very symbiotic relationship with them over the years, right? So it's not new. She said that can be a good thing for the creators of the original content because as long as they get recognition, it builds their brand and makes people more likely to subscribe. Sure. I mean, radio saying it's reported in the San Francisco Chronicle this morning. You know, this person's been indicted. Go read the rest. You know, the rest of the story is on San Francisco Chronicle. You know, as reported in the San Francisco Chronicle, as reported in the San Francisco Chronicle. That's that's a non-digital link. As we heard in previous episodes, Bridget was at Business Insider during the era of aggregation. So she knows the thinking that incentivized that behavior. And so then everybody did that. Like, just everybody did that. The exact same playbook. And I I mean, look at Business Insider now. How are they making their way now? They're doing amazing original content. Because everybody started, all of everyone's content started looking exactly the same. So original content is having a moment, quote unquote. Our next guest is from a very different kind of publisher, one focused on investigative journalism. Hi, I'm Meg Marco. I'm the senior editor for Audience at ProPublica. For us at ProPublica, we really, since we're pure investigative journalism, that's really all we do, everything that we put out, I mean, almost everything, is a scoop, right? I asked her if they do any aggregation. Yeah, no, we don't do any of it. Really. I see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, really, everything, you know, uh, really everything we do is, uh, is investigative journalism. So, given that they take an extreme approach to investment in original content, I asked about their approach to protecting their content. Everything we do is Creative Commons, right? Almost everything. Fundamental to our way of working is to let our, our, let our journalism find people. Um, in as free a way as we possibly can. It's, a, it's in the public interest, and our metric is impact. I, I would have imagined a possible response you could have given is one of, we produce scoops, they're really valuable, and when other people rewrite it or cite it, it sort of detracts from the attention and the eyeballs to our scoop that gives us a benefit because other people are looking at 
other publishers reporting on our reporting. But it sounds like you're saying that's not the case even at all and that you're trying to make make these scoops open and free and most likely to have bigger impact by cascading across the news ecosystem. Is that right? I would say that that's right. Yeah, we we're extremely I mean, really, if you look at um, our creative commons, thing, I would encourage you to look at the way that we've done this. Um, you know, you can republish the vast, vast, vast majority of ProPublica material. She said that ProPublica optimizes for impact. Like it, it purely comes from a place of wanting, um, you know, the, the widest impact for our work. So similar to how we heard that other publishers want recognition for their impact so that they can demonstrate value to subscribers, ProPublica's impact demonstrates value to donors. Meg wondered if there's a way that platforms could recognize this dynamic, although she said she understands it's probably difficult. Now, because we're a little strange, do, do platforms understand how that works? Because it's, it's very unique, right? Not, not a lot of places do that. Some places do, but not a lot. Um, so you know, do we want credit for our work? I mean, you know, absolutely we want credit for our work. Um, do we, strictly speaking, care where you read it? I think less so than is typical, um, but our metric is impact. There's no easy answer to this. It really, really isn't. And there's so many different types of news. There's so many different types of information. And just even classifying and understanding them in real time is so hard. We'll wrap up the episode with Jeff Jarvis, associate professor of journalism at the City University of New York. I asked if he felt the incentives have improved over time. I think the awareness of how it should be done is greater, but the incentives have gotten worse because the desperation is higher. You have fewer people on a staff, you still have to um, turn out the beast. We heard in this episode from national and local publishers, and I asked how their incentives differ. The business dynamics are very similar, local and national, which is to say that local is trying to be national. Uh, local media companies are competing for clicks now with national media. And again, abundance means prices will go down and it's not a pretty picture. What they should be doing is trying to figure out how to serve local advertisers uniquely with, with, with new service. But that's hard. The retail space is dying thanks to the Internet. Uh, advertisers can now go directly. I asked him about what local aggregation looks like, and he brought up an article he had mentioned about Kobe Bryant's death and that aggregation might be subsidizing local journalism. That story about after Kobe Bryant's death, 10 athletes who died in crashes Uh came from a local news source that was far away from anywhere Kobe Bryant's ever worked. Yeah. So they had someone who was paid to find that trending topic which we used to call news judgment, I guess, uh, and create something that would get social and search engine optimization juice and get traffic in uh, to create opportunities for programmatic sales. I see. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to be so critical or so cynical as to say that's all they do. One could argue that is a form of, of, of subsidization, not unlike classifieds, not unlike food sections, not unlike, indeed, sports sections, which don't have a lot of endemic revenue attached to them, never have. I I went to a major metro paper in America. They asked me in a few years ago, okay, smartass, you argue about um, a a relationship strategy, which is, I think, where we need to go. And so come in and and help us with that. Um, And when I arrived, the managing editor said, um, uh, our house is on fire, but we have two houses. And Jarvis wants to build a new house, he doesn't really have blueprints, but we're gonna try. But meanwhile, the house is on fire. And the publisher's gonna come out down every day and say, you know, clicks are down or prices are down, throw more cats on the fire. And there's no time to build the new house in a new model. You start to wonder whether we're better off with the newspapers starting to die so that we can, rather than rebuilding them, we rebuild journalism. And no, 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 I don't want newspapers to die, and I'm not going to dance on anybody's grave, and I'm not wishing for that. But I think the value of what we churn out in journalism is declining. Uh, The local reporting is time-consuming. It's necessary. It's part of their brand. They still have to do it. And and, and they're journalists. They want to do that. But that's not going to meet the traffic goal. The house is on fire. They've got to throw cats on, on the fire. 
in the next episode of Original Reporting. Here I am with a microphone in front of my face in front of a place where there was a fire 12 hours ago and nothing's actually happening. There's no one here to report on. There's no sources. There's no victims. There's no reason for me to be here except to use the world as a backdrop in this theater we call TV news. It's bull. We dive deeper into editorial reasons for aggregation of original content and what should be considered original reporting. You know, nothing is more culturally specific than journalism. There are so few things that I can think of that are more culturally specific than journalism. Huge thanks to the Neiman Foundation for supporting the research behind this podcast, especially Leah Becerra for helping make it possible and the Neiman Fellows for their invaluable guidance.